Tonight, a global natural disaster. There's evidence one happened 1,500 years ago. But what did it mean for those who lived then? Did nature's fury bring empires to their knees and forever change civilization? Uncover the secrets of the dead. AD has come and gone. The world has been hit by a catastrophe. Now comes bizarre weather. The sun is darkened. Skies are turbulent. Rain is red. And snow falls yellow. There is frost and famine. Seasons are blurred. In some places, great drought destroys the land. In others, floods bring chaos. The world will never be the same. The theory belongs to David Keyes. With dogged detective work, he has pieced together the story of an ancient catastrophe. By bringing together evidence from contemporary eyewitness accounts and tree rings, he has developed a picture of a lethal climate change that began in the year 535 AD and affected most of the world for the next 10 to 20 years. He found three possible causes for the huge amount of dust, ash, and water vapor that must have been hurled into the atmosphere to block out the sun. A comet, an asteroid, or a volcano. The presence of sulfuric acid in Arctic and Antarctic ice cores from that period has pointed the finger at a massive volcanic eruption. But where did it occur? From Chinese and Javanese records, Keyes has deduced that the culprit could have been the world's most notorious volcano, Krakatoa. Volcanologist Professor Haralder Sigurdsson took up the chase. He already knew that at some point in the distant past there had been a massive eruption at Krakatoa that had left a huge deposit of dust and ash. The goal of this trip was to dig up charcoal to carbon date the eruption, but he was only able to find samples from the levels above and below the major eruption layer. The samples, while not as accurate as Keyes would have liked, did indicate that the gigantic eruption could have occurred during the first millennium. But for Krakatoa to have been the cause of the climatic catastrophe, it must have been a spectacular event. The amount of power generated by this eruption would have been equivalent to around 2,000 million Hiroshima-sized nuclear bombs. 
The eruption of this ancient Krakatoa is something mankind has never witnessed, perhaps tens, hundreds of times larger than any volcano that's ever been witnessed. David Keyes asked Ken Willetts, an expert on Krakatoa, to feed all the available data about the 6th century climate change into a supercomputer to simulate how the explosion began to unfold. I will start the simulation and will show several phases of the eruption. Willetts placed the eruption in the Sunda Straits between Java and Sumatra. By combining tree ring and ice core data with eyewitness accounts of the dimming of the sun, it is possible to estimate how much material might have been thrown up into the Earth's atmosphere. With that figure, it is possible to calculate the scale and power of the explosion and its associated after-effects. Willetz's simulation was used to model Krakatoa's 535 AD Big Bang. giant red-hot fountain of molten rock would have towered over the countryside. A second crack let seawater in, creating a 30-mile-high fountain of magma. Up to a thousand miles away, ash would have rained down on forests and fields. The towering clouds of steam and gas and ash pierced and shot upwards, and at times when it seemed like it could no, go no higher, it would continue to go high, eventually to the point where it started to block out the sun in all directions. And this gray-white cloud would then start, see to sort of move laterally across the sky like a mushroom cloud. In a way, it would have been a sort of natural equivalent of a nuclear winter. The effects would have been global and devastating. Willetz has seen evidence of similar major eruptions farther back in history. One remnant is a dormant volcano near his lab, high in the hills of New Mexico. The 22-kilometer-wide caldera at Valle Grande, New Mexico, last exploded a million years ago. Ash from here landed as far away as Louisiana. Using the remains of Valle Grande, Willetz showed how high-flying volcanic emissions can travel great distances. This is ultra-fine volcanic ash formed by Phreatoplinian eruptions similar to what we think happened in the 6th century at Krakatoa. It's so fine that even just a baby's breath of air will keep it suspended by minute turbulence. 
it will never fall to the earth as long as the air is moving, which of course it always does high up in the atmosphere. Keyes believes that in 535 AD, similar microscopic particles of ash and sulfur dioxide from Krakatoa would have shrouded the sky in endless gray. Temperatures would have dropped. Without the full strength of the sun to heat and evaporate the ocean surfaces, there would have been less moisture released into the atmosphere. As a result, there would have been progressively less rainfall. As a result, there were droughts and famines. Uh, very often at the end of major droughts, uh, you do get um, massive floods, and that seems to have been what occurred. Confident he understands the natural course of events, Keyes now delves into the catastrophe's effects on human civilization. I began to think to myself, well, disruption as severe as this has got to have political consequences. It's really the long-term consequences that I was interested in in isolating, to see whether one big event can actually have a knock-on effect throughout history, worldwide. The idea that nature and climatic change can alter history is winning increasing respect from academics. In fact, evidence of the huge impact a volcanic eruption can have already exists from more recent times. Less than 200 years ago, another Indonesian volcano, Tambora, exploded. The Tambora eruption of 1815 produced a tremendous amount of sulfur dioxide that went up into the stratosphere. In New England, uh, there was a frost recorded every month during the summer, crop-killing frosts. There was starvation in, uh, in, in parts of Europe, social unrest. This uh, led to, the triggered both the migrations out of Germany into Russia and triggered the migration out of New England into the Ohio Valley and, and western United States. So it was a, a true social upheaval and it's been referred to as the last great subsistence crisis in the western world. And that was caused by a volcanic kind of eruption. David Keyes wanted to prove that a more massive and longer-lasting eruption in 535 would have had an even greater effect on world history. He decided to examine a series of historical puzzles from the 6th century AD. He looked at events that, from contemporary writings and archaeological evidence, were known to have taken place, but whose causes had never been fully explained. The first was the spread of a terrible disease that brought the mighty Roman Empire to its knees. By 535, under the Emperor Justinian, the empire, now based in Constantinople, was flourishing. It had recovered from the assaults of the Huns and Goths and had recaptured much of its former territory and glory. But in 542 AD, something awful struck at the heart of the Roman civilization. 
The horrors were documented by the monk Evagrius. With some people, it began in the head, made the eyes bloody and the face swollen, descended to the throat and then removed them from mankind. With others, there was a flowing of the bowels. Evagrius was describing the first recorded outbreak of bubonic plague. Could the plague have been tied to the climatic catastrophe? The plague is a bacillus bacterium transmitted from infected rats to humans. The carrier is the humble flea that feeds on rats' blood. This is a flea which has had a, a blood meal and has no plague uh, organisms in its gut and you can see that it's quite, stomach's quite full and everything's fine. If we look at, uh, if we contrast this with a, a flea which has taken up some of the bacillus, we can see that the, the, there's a blockage here and this uh, is brought about by a reaction between the bacillus and the flea's gut. Now, the result of this is, of course, that the, the flea can't feed properly and they become so ravenously hungry because they, they, they begin to starve, in effect, that they, the more they eat, um, well, they can eat and eat and eat, and they don't satisfy their hunger because their gut is blocked. And so they will jump onto absolutely anything in the chance of getting a, a free meal. As the rats themselves die from the plague, the fleas jump to other animals, including humans, for blood. And then, as Evagrius describes, the agony begins. Some came out in Bubos, which gave rise to great fevers, and they would die two or three days later, with their minds in the same state as those who had suffered nothing, and with their bodies still robust. Others lost their senses before dying. Keyes found out from scientists that outbreaks of the plague are strongly related to changes in climate. And the sort of changes that followed the 535 event, in particular cooling and unpredictable rainfall, have a huge impact on the spread of the disease. Temperatures affect how the plague bacteria form in the flea's gut. Well, plague um, epidemics um, are temperature related. Um, what happens is that in the, in the gut of the flea, the, the fibrin clot only forms at temperatures below 25 degrees centigrade. Above 25 degrees centigrade, the clot doesn't form, and any bacillus is simply passed out of the flea with the faeces. So cooler temperatures allow the bacteria to flourish, and there is new scientific evidence that cooler temperatures also increase rat populations. In Colorado, scientists are detailing the climate plague connection. They examine 30 years of climate records and plague infections in the American Southwest. Their work shows that cool weather and additional rainfall significantly increase the prevalence of the plague. Now, this model only talks about the American Southwest, but the general principles that we believe are involved here would be that once that cycle begins, you're likely to see a dramatic increase in rodent populations. And when that occurs, 
then you have a greatly increased likelihood that you'll see these plague outbreaks in the animal populations, and it, that's the time when it can spill over to the human population. That is exactly what happened in the Southwest in the early 1980s. Cooler conditions swelled rat populations. Could a similar increase have occurred in 535 AD? And if so, where? In ancient times, the plague could have come from only two sources. Well, according to one of our contemporary sources, the church historian Evagrius, the plague originated in Ethiopia. People have attempted to argue the plague may have come from China, from the Orient, but if that were the case, one would have expected it to reach Persia before it reached the Roman Empire. What we know, both scientifically and historically, is that the Great Lakes area of Central Africa is one of the oldest foci of plague activities uh, in the world, and that it would appear that the assertion of Evagrius is correct. Because Central Africa tends to be hot, the disease is kept at bay. But if the region was affected by the global cooling of 535 and 536, it may have become a lethal breeding ground for the plague. From Africa, via the trade routes, ships, rats and sailors could easily bring the plague up the coast, first hitting the port of Alexandria in Egypt, then north to the heart of the Roman Empire. And human greed for one precious commodity would only accelerate that process. In the 6th century, there was an enormous trade in African ivory. Hundreds of tons of ivory are being brought into the empire every year and being processed for luxury furniture, for luxury objects which important magistrates would give out as gifts, processed for diplomatic gifts that the empire could then use to impress his neighbours further to the north and further to the West, people who would never have seen an elephant in their lives. And it was essentially the um, uh, European and Mediterranean greed for ivory that brought the roof in. Only seven years after the 535 climatic catastrophe, the ivory trade allowed the plague to surge into Constantinople. Its impact was devastating. They had to dispose of over 10,000 bodies a day, week after week after week, throwing them into the sea off special boats, sticking them in the towers of the city wall, filling up cisterns, digging up orchards. Soldiers were forced to dig mass graves in which to uh, cast the bodies of those who had died. The impression is one of chaos and pandemonium. Constantinople, Europe's biggest city, stank for month after month after month. One writer recorded that when the number of dead reached a quarter of a million, Constantinople officials simply stopped counting. As people left the stricken city, they took the plague to towns, villages, and farms throughout the empire. Untold millions perished. And Mike Whitby believes the long-term implications were disastrous for the Romans. The plague struck a mortal blow at the health of the empire. It also struck a mortal blow at the military vitality of the empire. Partly 
by killing off re potential recruits also affects the armies indirectly. Less tax from farming, from agriculture, less money into imperial coffers, less money to pay troops, less money to hire mercenaries to supplement the armies. The plague um, delivered a heavy punch uh, from the south to the Roman Empire. Um, caused mayhem in the empire, massively reduced population. It had all sorts of economic, military, social implications. But um, there was another punch which uh, hit the empire, uh, this time really from, um, from the east. This second threat was brewing some 3,000 miles away. The climatic event was having an extraordinary effect on an extraordinary people and their livestock. In the isolated plains of Mongolia, hundreds of miles north of China, something strange was about to happen. Before 535 AD, the overlords of the region were a tribe of violent barbarian horsemen, the Avars. Chinese writers recorded their uncivilized way of life. These are uh, foul-smelling uh, barbarians from their point of view, uh, with outrageous habits. The Avars never bathed, never washed their clothing. They cleaned their dishes by having the women lick them dry, uh, all of which was uh, simply horrifying to the Chinese. But in one respect, as both Chinese chronicles and archaeological finds show, the Avars were years ahead of other cultures. Finds from archaeological digs all over Avar territories suggest that they were the most advanced horsemen in the world. Their style of riding, saddles and mouth bits are still in use by Hungarian plainsmen today. And many believe that the Avars almost certainly invented the stirrup. It was this large concentration of horses that gave them a, a military edge, the latest in the military technology of that era. The horses also provided food and sustenance. The Avars drank fermented mare's milk, uh, an alcoholic beverage. So horses were central to their existence. Then, following 535 AD, Chinese records and tree ring evidence from Mongolia and Siberia suggest that the Mongolian steppe was crippled by cold and drought. These conditions may have lasted for more than a decade and may have severely weakened the Avar nation. By 552 AD, the Avars were attacked by the Turks, a people who lived in the surrounding highlands. 
They had previously been the Avar's subjects. But mysteriously, the once invincible Avar horsemen were crushed. Up until now, the cause of this sudden reversal of power has never been identified. But David Keyes had an idea. So I was very puzzled by this and um, decided to try and, uh, try and find out uh, what the mechanism was. I thought, well, maybe it's something to do with their economy. Well, the Avar economy was a horse-based one. Uh, the Turk economy was a much more mixed one involving considerable numbers of cattle. The question came to my mind, well, was there something about the way that a cattle economy works and a horse economy works, the difference between those that might shed some light on the political events, on the demise of the Avars? Keyes contacted John Milne at the Macaulay Land Use Centre in Aberdeen, Scotland. Milne has made a detailed study of how different animals feed and survive. Yes, these horses here are, are actually Highland ponies, but in terms of the, the sort of size, uh, they're very similar to, to uh, what I believe the Avar horses would have been like. They're, they're quite similar to some of the at least in terms of size, in terms of the Mongolian and, and uh, Kazakh horses that you, that you see now. To understand the difference between horse-based and cattle-based economies, Milton picks up some unexpected evidence. Here you can see some uh, horse dung, and you can see that the, uh, it's very fibrous, uh, which demonstrates, and it's made up of fairly large pieces of fiber, which demonstrates that this has not been well digested by, by the horse. Now, if you compared some cattle feces, you would see that it, it was much more uh, finely ground up uh, and, in fact, much better digested th than horse manure. After the catastrophe, when the climate deteriorated and the vegetation grew sparse on the Mongolian steppe, could the contrast in horses' and cows' digestive systems have made a vital difference and put the avars at risk. Cows have a greater efficiency to digest food. They also have the ability to eat a wider range of different uh, herbage types so that they can eat, for example, uh, very rank vegetation. In contrast, uh, the horses are, are less capable of eating rank, really poor quality vegetation uh, than cattle and in a drought situation you get you would get eventually to the state where the horse was not able to eat enough food and because it was not been able to digest it successfully then it, it would not be able to survive and so in those in circumstances then uh, the avars would, would be very vulnerable I was absolutely amazed when, when, when I found that, in fact, it was uh, merely the differences uh, between a, a, a cow's and, and a horse's stomach design that had probably had uh, such a major effect on subsequent history. Chinese chronicles record how, in defeat at the hands of the Turks, 
Thousands of Avars were slaughtered or enslaved. Their leader committed suicide. Most of the surviving Avars began a 4,000-mile trek westward. Their journey was about to play a huge part in history. The Avar refugee caravan cut across what is now northern Kazakhstan, skirted the northern shore of the Caspian Sea, and into the fertile grasslands south of the Carpathian Mountains, the area that is now the Balkans. As they traveled, the Avars recovered. Their horse technology was still superior to anything they found on their route. Once again, they became a conquering people, driving all others before them. Eventually, they reached the fringes of the Roman Empire. They arrive in the late 550s as refugees. Within a decade, their ruthless horsemanship, ruthless military ability has come to dominate all the tribes, all the groups of Slavs, Huns, Germans living north of the Danube on the empire's frontiers and having imposed their control over these groups, the Avars can then turn their attention against the empire. The impact of the Avars was particularly devastating because when they captured fortified cities, the fate of the inhabitants was, was not pleasant. People would be impaled. If they were lucky, they'd be taken off into captivity and exploited as Avar serfs or as cannon fodder in Avar armies. The empire, already weakened by the plague, was constantly harassed by Avar incursions. At one point, even Constantinople was besieged. Rather than take over, the Avars opted for blackmail and extracted vast amounts of gold from the empire in return for peace. Some of it can be seen today in museums. Much of it is rumored to lie buried under the plains of Hungary. Historians believe that over a 50-year period, the Avars netted gold from the Roman Empire that would be worth $11 billion today. The Avar impact combined uh, with the uh, plague and the economic problems that ensued destabilized the empire. And at the end of the day, it can all be traced back to this um, climatic destabilization of the mid-sixth century, uh, which was triggered by the volcanic eruption. David Keyes believed a pattern was emerging that showed huge political consequences stemming from the catastrophe. By now, he had found fallout in Europe and the East. He next turned to the Americas to investigate an extraordinary coincidence of timing and another historical puzzle where a great city had fallen without explanation. In the early 6th century, 125,000 people lived in Teotihuacan, in the central Mexican plain. 
In 500 AD, when the city reached its peak, it really was what is called a primate city. By that I mean the second next largest city is so far below it in size that there really, you could almost say there are no other cities. I mean, that's an overstatement, obviously, but there were cities of 10,000 people, 20,000. But compared to the 125,000 here, it was nothing. So it was the only huge, large city in the entire central Mexican plateau. Then, midway through the 6th century, shortly after 535 AD, things began to go terribly wrong in Teotihuacan. For the past 12 years, Rebecca's story has been painstakingly studying skeletons of people who once lived in one of the city's suburbs, called Clahinga. The bones provide a remarkable history of the population's health. Well, the Clahinga population has um, adults. It also has quite a few children and an awful lot of babies. Story began to notice that in Teotihuacan's later period, the population, and in particular the babies, suffered a severe decline in health. These kinds of infections that show up on the bone are long-lasting bacterial infections, and they're very common on the children. Now, babies shouldn't have infections like this. Normally, they should be born with relatively good immunological protection from their parents, their mother. But in the case of Tlahinga, we find lots of babies with already infectious reactions indicating that the health of the mothers was so poor that the children are getting sick as well. The problem with the, the very late population there around the 6th century is that overwhelmingly it is babies, children, and individuals under the age of 25. They should not be dying at that proportion. So they start to become 70% of my sample rather than the much lower 40 or 45% that they were in the earlier period. It is a population that is in great trouble and is probably collapsing. New scientific evidence suggests that the city's decline occurred around the middle to late 6th century, 150 years earlier than previously thought. For David Keyes, this redating is a breakthrough. Now, in fact, one can see that uh, Teotihuacan's fall um, really f comes straight on the heels of the climatic disaster. And I think that there's a very, very high chance the two are, are connected. There are no existing tree rings or other evidence from Mexico itself to show whether there was a significant climate change. However, lake deposits in the nearby Yucatan Peninsula show a possible 30-year drought starting in the mid-6th century. Tree ring evidence from California shows a dramatic reduction in tree growth from the late 530s onwards. A study of river levels in Colombia shows that the mid to late 6th century seemed to be the driest period in the last 3,000 years. The indications throughout the Americas, combined with Rebecca Story's findings of malnutrition, suggest to David Keyes Teotihuacan was gripped by a long-lasting drought that devastated the city's food supply. 
a drought Keyes believes was directly linked to the climatic catastrophe. When something happens to the food supply, well, that makes people more subject to getting ill because they're not getting enough food. Then this is a very dry environment. Water had to always have to been a very important thing. And without water, you have very great sanitation problems. Sanitation would then lead to lots of diseases circulating through with the people and causing mortality and ill health. And that affects the productivity of a city. City's not productive when it's people are sick. And that becomes one of the things that then say, well, no, we don't want to go to Teotihuacan anymore because it's not a good place to be. According to the latest research, Teotihuacan was finally destroyed when the people rose up against their leader. Smashing the palaces and setting the city's biggest temple ablaze. Somebody went in there and set fire to all the roof beams and caused this, the ceiling and roof to collapse, bring down the upper walls and form a big mound of debris. And that's what happened all up and down the main street of the city. Maybe they decided that elite class that was making demands on them was asking too much, that the priests who were supposedly bringing the rain and making the springs flow were no longer successful because the, uh, because the spring flow was dropping and the rains were diminishing, uh, and they lost confidence maybe in the priestly class as well. What appears to happen is that you've got a destabilization, um, perhaps some religious and political changes, followed by a revolution of some sort and the collapse of the city. In a way, similar to events um, in, in Europe, indeed, in the way that Constantinople, uh, the Roman Empire, was affected. Five three five um, disturbs the status quo and allows history to reform itself all over the world. It really is the interface between the ancient world and the world we live in today. In central Mexico, it took 300 years for a new civilization to establish itself. Throughout the 6th century, similar stories were unfolded. Ancient civilizations crumbled. Others were just beginning. And according to David Keyes, the emergence of the new, including the birth of England, can also be linked to the catastrophe. Britain in the mid-sixth century, the Dark Ages. The Romans had left a hundred years earlier. In the west of the island, native British tribes, the Celts, fought to stem the tide of Anglo-Saxon invasion. According to legend, it was the time of the death of King Arthur, when his country turned to a wasteland. As he rode thus through the land, he found trees down and grain destroyed and all things laid waste, as if lightning had struck in each place. He found half the people in the villages dead.
earth no longer produced when cultivated. From that time on, no wheat or other grain grew there, and no tree bore fruit, and very few fish were found in the sea. For this reason, the two kingdoms were called the Wasteland. But could the wasteland of legend be a distant memory of the 535 catastrophe? What is certain from British and Irish annals is that the bubonic plague that had devastated the Roman Empire finally reached Britain around 547 AD. It arrived on Roman ships that were still trading with Britain. This was a significant event in the um, history of Western Britain and Ireland. Certainly, as one goes through the annals, one can find many references to plagues. One of them is referred to as the Mortalitas Magna, the Great Mortality. Another one is the Mortalitas Prima, the first plague like this. This does suggest something special. They'd never experienced the plague before. Uh, it was a completely uh, new horror that they, they knew nothing about. They wouldn't have understood even what was happening. Suddenly people began to develop these terrible um, pustules underneath their armpits, in their groins, and they would have died in the most terrible agony. According to Keyes, the plague changed the political shape of Britain. At that time, Britain was divided in two. In the west lived the native Celtic Britons. The east was occupied by invaders from Europe, the Angles and the Saxons. East and west had very little contact with each other. The Anglo-Saxon peoples traded mainly with their former homelands of Germany and Scandinavia. The Celtic Britons still traded with the Roman world. This meant that the Celts were at far greater risk of catching the plague as it arrived on Roman ships. So by the time you come into the latter part of the century, the Celtic West and Centre have, been, have experienced a huge population reduction. There's a population vacuum. And so Anglo-Saxon peoples are able to move from the east, they're able to move west into partially empty lands. And uh, England was, was born. Key's theory is that England was formed because the healthy Anglo-Saxons were able to defeat the plague-stricken Britons. One can see 535 as a watershed, where you see the, the forces coming into play which create um, such countries as England, uh, Spain, France, Japan, the United China. Now came the final and most controversial turn in David Key's theory. Could the catastrophe have been linked not just to the emergence of new nations, but also to the birth of a new world religion, Islam? Now, 
This is what is left today of the Marib Dam in Yemen at the southern tip of Arabia. But at the beginning of the 6th century, Yemen was the region's greatest power and it depended on the Marib Dam, its greatest engineering feat. The Marib was huge, 2,000 feet long, feeding into hundreds of miles of canals. But within a few years of the 535 event, climatic chaos hit the region. First drought, and then a succession of storms and flash floods that weakened the dam. The constant attempts to repair the dam are recorded on contemporary inscriptions. What we're looking at is one of the great inscriptions that was put up on the uh, facade of the dam, really commemorating the rebuilding in this, of, of the dam, the repair of the dam, in this case in the year 542. And it's, it's a long inscription describing all the various people who came and contributed to this. And we can pick out right in the center here the cartouche, the symbol of the ruler of uh, the kingdom at that stage, one Abraha. And there are a whole series of these inscriptions uh, for about two or three hundred years. And then they stop, which is very indicative of exactly uh, what the Arabic sources are telling us, that there was a period when this dam was broken and was not repaired again. The Marib Dam was ultimately abandoned, and its ruin was the downfall of Yemen. Her people migrated to a new regional power base that had emerged around Medina and Mecca, where back in 570 AD, the Prophet Muhammad had been born. in precisely that Mecca, Medina area uh, that Muhammad was based. And so it's really uh, the growth of Medina as an um, important political center that is so crucial in the early development of Islam. Keyes contends that the climatic chaos weakened the Marib and began the shift of power to Medina, where Muhammad's family was already well established. The uh, Prophet's family, or the Prophet's ancestors, had um, taken it upon themselves, really, to provide food, to import food into this area and provide food for the population. And this was one of their claims to, to, to fame and to status. Muhammad's family's reputation for social concern helped his ministry take root in a time of drought, famine and plague, which had by now made its way to Arabia. By the end of the 6th century, the people were crying out for an end to their suffering. I think Muhammad's message was attractive because this was a period of upheaval and disturbance. One's got this whole apocalyptic atmosphere in the ancient world at that time. There's been war, uh, there's been a revolution. The Roman Empire, which had really dominated the political scene um, for, what, 800 years, appeared to be tottering. There is a lot of apocalyptic literature from this period. There are a lot of people saying, this is terrible, the world's coming to an end. How do we interpret these disasters? What are they a sign of, and so on? The political certainties of the world were collapsing around everybody's ears. Uh, nobody seemed sure of the future. Um, it was a, a very, very unsettled time 
to live. All these things uh, can be traced back uh, to an extent to the uh, climatic chaos caused by the eruption of 535, and they all feed into the early evolution of Islam. While some scientists remain skeptical about the cause and effects of the 535 event, Key's deductions provide a stern warning about the global repercussions that could arise from a future climate-altering occurrence. Now, if a volcanic eruption in 535 could wreak all this um, havoc, and draw the ancient world to a final close and really help lay the foundations of the world we live in today, what would happen if there was another massive eruption? Key's concern is more than just idle speculation. While no one can predict exactly when a major eruption will happen, there are a handful of volcanic monsters lurking underground. The granddaddy of them all is believed to be Yellowstone caldera in Wyoming. This caldera is maybe twice the size of any known modern caldera, and its eruptions, which have occurred not once, not twice, but three times over the last two million years, indicate that it can, has devastated northern America several times. Uh, besides Long Valley caldera, there's a caldera in California, which is also heating up uh, the ground is shaking there. Uh, there's been uh, uh, die-off of the forest by uh, noxious gases, carbon dioxide coming out of the earth. Uh, public is very concerned about that volcano. Closer to home uh, for some people would be uh, the area around uh, Naples, Italy. Sure, it's famous for Vesuvius, which has erupted many times in the past and potentially will again in the future. There's also a caldera just on the north side of Naples, underlying a metropolitan area of Campi Flegre and Pozzuoli, where thousands of people live and have lived for a long time. The last eruption in the Campi Flegri complex was in 1538. At that time, 3,000 people were killed by the immediate explosion. Today, 400,000 people live within the same area. The whole complex is still active and capable of a major eruption. Uh, that would be a total disaster for Italy, a major disaster for Europe and um, would no doubt have worldwide climatic repercussions uh, which would have huge implications for agriculture, uh, huge implications from a disease point of view worldwide uh, and would no doubt have the effect of destabilizing all sorts of potentially unstable countries all over the world. It would change our climate. It would produce uh, change in the pattern of wet and dry cycles uh, for vast portions of the earth. We're familiar with the El Nino and La Nina effects. This would be even a much greater perturbation, uh, perhaps uh, lowering the temperature, the uh, global average temperature several degrees or more. 
the biggest effect for, for people anywhere is that it's going to disrupt their, the food supply. Uh, and it's going to take years to, uh, for the climate to either go back to normal or for people to uh, uh, change the, uh, the crops that they use and, uh, and the way that they plant them. There may not be food to import from other countries because they'll need it every bit as much or more than, than we will. And if our agriculture has failed in some way, then there just wouldn't be enough to eat. I mean, that's, that to me seems to be the logic of the situation. Now, in times past, you're right, subsistence economies, if they had low population densities, they could go to the seashore and live on shellfish. And indeed, people sometimes did that under really stressful conditions. Uh, but you can't do that nowadays. There aren't enough shellfish to go around. If we are confronted with a global event at any time in the future, um, it's not quite clear how we would cope. The whole infrastructure of civilization will collapse around us uh, due to the huge environmental catastrophe that, that would uh, happen um, because of the failing of uh, crop production, the darkening of the skies. Communications would, would be taken out, satellite communication, uh, aircraft uh, transport would uh, be interrupted very severely for a long period. That, that type of event will occur in, in the future. Well, people start to struggle for resources. I mean, and basically that means warfare. And in the modern world, it's not quite clear exactly what would happen. You either sit and starve, or you get out there and try and acquire food. Uh, there's not much alternative in a, in a really stressful situation. One of the big lessons from 535, I think, is that we're not talking about a big bang and then the world changes. We're talking about a big bang and then it takes 100 to 150 years for the new reality to actually emerge. What will happen in the future, of course, one doesn't know. But I think that um, uh, historians, uh, economists, politicians uh, should really pay rather more attention, perhaps, to uh, the ability of natural forces to change history than they do at the moment. With online experiments and new forensic evidence, find more answers to history's greatest mysteries at pbs.org. Secrets of the Dead was made possible by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
and by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. This is PBS.